Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Rajasal Mastery and I'm excited to have Anupam Mastogi, who's the partner at Emergent Ventures, where he focuses on seed and early stage investments in transformative startups in the intelligence office space, which includes themes such as augmented intelligence, enterprise automation, the future of work and cloud and infrastructure. Anupam holds computer science degrees from IIT Delhi and MBA from Wharton School. Uh, welcome to the show, Anupam. Thanks a lot. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. So you know, um, uh, uh, you you have an interesting story because you know you you started from uh, from IIT Delhi and then you moved to uh, to the US. So what was the story about what got you uh, there in the US and what got you uh, in, into this crazy world of venture capital? Yeah. Uh, so I moved to the US twice. Uh, first uh, after my undergrad, uh, I moved here for a master's. So I was really deep into technology actually from the early days. I was very curious about the intersection of technology and business. And really looking forward to how can we bring more new technologies to market. And I saw pursuing a master's in the U.S. as uh, a stepping stone to that path. So I had written up some you know, patents and international publications at the age of 20. Nice. And as part of that, got to interact with some professors and others and ended up moving to the U.S. at that time. And then, uh, you know, uh, I was on the operating side, building things, uh, started off as a researcher, then engineer. Uh, then a product manager, and then working on go-to-market at a couple of startups, and then uh, entered venture as a way of, I saw that as a way of, uh, you know, really working with five to seven or more startups at a time and bringing uh, some of that thinking and skill set and resources to a number of founders. And I really enjoyed the operating part of my career. And I see venture as very much an extension of that at the stage at uh, which I do it, which is very early at seed stages. Uh, my second move was actually as I moved back to India for some time uh, in the around 2009, as the venture ecosystem there was taking off uh, okay. to participate in the opportunity there. And uh, then I moved back to the US, in, and that's that was about eight nine years back. And that was basically to pursue as you know that time uh, uh, in enterprise software. There was a number of new technologies, including how data was being used. IoT was on the horizon. AI first wave of it was starting to take off and moved back to the US uh, to pursue that. Very interesting. And um, I was wondering, you know, how, how was your experience working with um, NGP Capital and NX Partners? Um, uh, you, you did mention about, you know, some, some of the investments that you led. Uh, what was your whole experience before you got into emerging ventures? Yeah. So, yeah, it was a, you know, NGP was a great experience. That was my First major role in venture capital entered the firm around 2009, and uh, that was, of course, a you know very different kind of time. This was right in the middle of the great financial crisis, and uh, you know, so I was fortunate to find an opportunity with NGP at that time. And the firm was itself was uh, readily new at that time, which was a great opportunity because, uh, as a result of that, got to participate in a lot of interesting areas beyond just learning about investing, which is just one aspect of venture capital. But there's a lot of other aspects around firm building. And I got to participate and contribute towards, you know, how decisions are made, how investments are analyzed more broadly uh, in hiring uh, more, you know, uh, earlier stage investment professionals, and then also building out 
things like a data oriented ai oriented infrastructure to source and identify deals and a few other things so it was a great experience i was there for 8 years uh, that was definitely where i was able to sort of develop and hone a lot of the skills that i bring to emergent got an interesting and you know um the uh, uh, the call i mentioned uh, you know i, I was working in an ai company but uh, it's my first photo there but um, I, i was wondering you know what Uh, there's been a lot of noise about ai and you know especially in in the european they're talking about um about the regulations and uh uh, uh what uh, i want to understand what jobs do you think would be created in this next generation of ai economy should should we be really worried that you know humans um will lose lose their jobs and there'll be a lot of uh, mayhem around yeah let's say you know fair or uh, some amount of concern or thoughtfulness around what jobs are impacted is certainly merited with the developments that are happening in ai especially the up leveling that's happened over the past year is very significant and mm-hmm. i think it's natural to then think about hey how does this impact how work is done and work will be impacted how it is done everything is going to look different and let's say if we really fast forward maybe 10 20 years from now uh what uh, let's say 100000 people do in a corporation in a large corporation that look very different uh but that doesn't necessarily mean that it uh would mean reduction in jobs or entirely new jobs i'd say the more interesting change at least for me is going to be that people are the nature of the tasks that people are doing is going to look different so you know what a marketer is doing or what a sales person is doing or what an engineer is doing day to day uh with ai ai is going to be really good at entry level repetitive type tasks it is already very good at that and right. for folks that can really leverage that well folks who are very interested to stay on top of what's the latest what are the latest tools and able to use the expertise to adapt that to their workflow whether it's again a marketer or engineer or anyone else those people are going to do really well and th- the value of that expertise is actually going to go up so engineers who can actually leverage Uh, automated coding tools automated testing tools uh, api generation documentation all of those tools they're going to be 10x 100x more productive over time with ai and the value of those is going to go up uh, of course i think in that process there are going to be some jobs where uh, it's going to be uh, you know ai can do that job so i think it's really up to the individuals to uh, then maybe move up it's an opportunity to move up the value stack and move into tasks that require you know judgment creativity human interface and those tasks i at least in the foreseeable future based on current technologies or even the current curve i don't see those skills being replaced by ai you know you're still going to see a doctor the doctor may be using ai to improve uh, the you know their the outcomes but it's not that you will in a in serious cases not see a doctor or that you don't see a lawyer you will still need lawyers uh, but you may not need a lot of people reading through every judgment uh, in the case of lawyers uh, your ai can really easily surface but the your legal counsel who advises you based on understanding all these prior judgments they are actually going to be now almost a superhuman legal counsel who is going to be much better at the job so i think it's going to be a mix and i think entry level uh jobs are going to be a little bit more challenging uh on that front in terms of uh, the impact of ai and then folks that are able to quickly move into higher value uh, they're going to be even more sort of than they are now got an interesting and um uh, i was wondering you know uh, whom do you believe uh, would win in the next 5 years would it be startups or incumbents who have their distribution model with them yeah i think 
it's going to be very bespoke. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of large incumbents who are very interested in the space. They have right. the data, they have the capital, they have the engineers, they have the infrastructure to buy all the GPU uh, capacity. But at the same time, uh, what we've seen, and, you know, of course, as a venture capitalist investing at the earliest stages, uh, I'm betting my time, energy, money on uh, the startups uh, where they can win. So it's really about identifying the areas where startups can win. That's what we spend all our day doing is uh, when we, at least in the evaluation part of the startups, is understanding where are the entry points for startups. And often, you know, it tends to be areas which which may not seem as large right now, so which may not be worthwhile for uh, someone like a Google or Microsoft or OpenAI to pursue themselves because it's not a $100 billion opportunity. But it looks smaller now. It's a you know, typically often, and I focus on enterprise B2B software. So within the enterprise, uh, there's just a very large number of problems which are specific to that domain, to that vertical or that function, uh, which uh, startups may often be better suited to dealing with that because you really have to build the right product for that persona, for that use case, for that vertical, which can really work in that environment for the startup. And that's where uh, startups tend to be, uh, I'd say, they're more likely to do well than they would. And let's say if someone is just trying to build a new foundation model to compete with the large folks, that I would say it's going to be very hard for any new startup coming in today to be able to do that. Hmm. And when it comes to, you know, just wondering and out of uh, all the bigger companies, whom do you think uh, is in a position to really dominate, uh, you know, like Microsoft has done a, um, I think uh, with the investment on OpenAI, I think they they look like, you know, they're in the, in the, in the front, but, whom, whom do you think could win out of all the you know bigger uh, fang companies? I don't know if it is fang, but um, but out of all the all the big companies. Yeah, you know, there's different acronyms now, right? Magma, and uh, I've seen some other funnier ones. But you know, I would say it'll probably take an astrologer to <laughs> make that prediction. And you know, I'm not one. Uh, and you know, to give you a sense, you know, we are in very. I think we are in really early innings of AI right now, and if we uh, we can always. Attempt to learn from prior similar disruptions, and if you look at let's say the internet space, you yeah. know the big moment when internet really started taking off. If you had to pick one, would be you know the launch of Netscape in, back in '93, yeah. and you know, the internet had existed before that, but it was really esoteric, and you know only some organizations were able to use it for specific use cases. But then Netscape is what really led to that unlocking of the value. But you know, ten years later, Netscape was nowhere on the horizon. There were yeah. other players and. You could look at search engines where Google was certainly not the first search engine. Uh, you could take mobile phones where uh, you know Palm and BlackBerry uh, and others had smartphones well before uh, iPhone. So I'd say it really come down to execution. And uh, the space is just moving so fast that uh, I think all of these companies that you named have big resources. So uh, how they play it, which parts they're playing. And I do think the platform approach is more likely to work in the space. I'd say things like chat GPT and other consumer interfaces are just a window into what these systems can do. The real value is going to come from more platform for the larger players. It's going to be in the platform where others can build and build specific products for use cases, for verticals, for different settings. And whoever plays that right makes the right kind of product for developers and other companies uh, at the right cost and uh, you know solving some of the you know some of the biggest issues we are all sort of uh, you know tracking closely with of course with hallucinations with uh, you know AI just producing things which you don't know whether they're correct 
being able to explain why they did that, being able to remove bias, uh, managing cost, and, and a number of others. So folks that solve that first, I think, would be better positioned. Mm. And, you know, I, I did um, mention feeling about um, how, uh, how you know, Europe wants to really look at AI regulation. But, but do you think, uh, you, you know, regulation and, you know, legal issues can, can, can stop, uh, you know, uh, incumbents and the, some, of the, some of the bigger companies? Yeah, I, I think that there is a lot of discussion around regulation that's starting to happen, and I think rightfully so. I think uh, this current version of set of AI tools is certainly powerful enough that it merits uh, you know all of us uh, and society is thinking about what's the right way to do it. I think it's going to be, in my view, it's unlikely that regulation will completely stop what's happening. I think the genie is out of the box. There are open source tools out there. Anyone sitting with a laptop soon enough can just take an open source LLM and fine tune it and deploy it. Right. So I don't know if it's even logistically possible to constrain what is done. And if let's say one company is prohibited or one set of companies from a certain country are prohibited, how do you control companies from other countries and could be adversarial countries from making this progress? So I'd say it's unlikely regulation would or should stop the progress with these models. But I think having those guardrails is important and uh, some of them may map into specific uh, things. For example, uh, you know, there's going to be uh, with the modern image and video generation tools, you can now generate very realistic videos and images, right. which in certain settings could be very useful, but in certain other settings uh, that could be problematic. For example, if there is messages uh, which are not said by someone, but uh, you create a fake video and it goes viral on social media. Sure. Now, how do you regulate that? So there has to be some way of tracing the lineage and someone to be able to certify that, hey, this is a real video versus a generated video. Uh, that's an example. But I think those kind of things which are bespoke to those use cases uh, are more likely. And I think those should happen uh, for AI to really thrive. But as a broader, just sort of, hey, let's stop this development right now and freeze it in place. I think that's both infeasible and uh, it's, in my opinion, also uncalled for. Got it. And, uh, you know, how important do you think is a large models to, you know, winning the next 12 to 24 months? I'd say uh, large models are certainly, I mean, they're called the foundational models for a reason. And they are, uh, it's a lot being built on top of that. And what we are seeing increasingly is that folks are now starting to think about multi-model type approach where they have easy ability to plug in and plug out uh, different models and be able to tap into multiple models for the same workflow. So to that extent, uh, of course, large models are important, but uh, if I had to project it out, I'd say in a year or two, a lot of applications may be built in a manner where they're not dependent on one large model. They would need a very highly performant large model that's underlying it or multiple, but they may not be tied to one. Uh, if I were developing and for our companies, that's what we advise as well, is that uh, you know they shouldn't be tied to just one model. So uh, but then just given the pace at which different models are coming out with different capabilities, it makes a lot more sense there from that perspective as well to be able to uh, have an infrastructure that's architected in a way where you can tap into a different model and just swap in, swap out uh, when you need to. Got it. And, uh, you know, I, I run this, uh, uh, you know, podcast, which is like a, like a hobby for me, but I, I use some of the AI tools like, you know, Descript and Pod Squeeze, uh, which does help me in productivity, but, uh, but, but I've somehow seen it helps me in content creation and content production. But where do you see, you know, 
uh, a will drive productivity for for a normal employee uh, any any use cases that you've seen yeah i'd say yeah i think by for each persona for each use case for whatever work people are doing i think there are tools coming out and we can take a few as quick examples if you just take uh, software development uh, you know there's different statistics out there but somewhere between 20 to 40% of code today that's being written uh, on github is already generated by ai and there's no reason that wouldn't be you know it could be 80 90% in the next few years uh, but then uh, and then there's a lot of other tools around that with uh, you know uh, tools for automated testing tools for generating documentation tools for automatically integrating with apis and other things so a developer who's on top of these tools and able to adapt them to the use case uh, can just write now a lot more code than they right. could otherwise and not more in terms of lines but a lot more functionality can be built a lot quick more quickly similarly for marketers uh, you know pretty much across the board whether it's of course uh, you know writing blogs or writing website content uh, your first draft which is maybe you know 70 80% of the work now you can have a ready first start with the right prompt and right inputs you can have a draft and then you actually use your time to really finesse it and bring more unique perspectives to it and uh, really fine tune it to your audience or other tasks like that so you maybe move one step up uh, similarly for a lot of other marketing roles uh, and we are investors in several companies uh, which play in all of these areas you can take sales the folks that are in sales uh, you know they spend a lot of time prospecting or writing emails now we have companies where uh, and these emails would actually be better for the recipient as well because they're more tailored to yeah. the knowledge that the sender already has about the recipient and using that they are now creating a, again and these are drafts so the person then has to use their judgment and creativity to really finesse the output of these tools and then they're able to send if they were going to send maybe 20 personalized emails now they can send 200 personalized emails a day yeah. so if they were going to write you know one block piece of uh you know a week maybe they can write four or five now uh, a week so i think that's how the productivity of some of these uh, professions or different you know personas uh, is already we're seeing that sort of go up correct yeah no absolutely um, i i also you know, you know saw one of the blog posts where you talked about how a sales team should not uh, send out you know uh, emails using using like an automation tool but they should really personalize it but i think um you know the, the founder of lavender who came on the pod and uh, you know tools like lavender and and reggie i think they, they they're very useful to create uh, you know uh, personalized emails for uh, for sales teams i think uh uh yeah i mean it's it has really started helping me out but um but you know i'm uh, i'm based in the uk i've also worked in uh, in in india but how what advice would you give to companies uh, who want to build teams in the respective markets but also want to acquire customers in the biggest market of them all which is us yeah yeah great question yeah we have uh, you know at emergent we focus exclusively on companies where the market is the us or primary market is the us but a lot of our companies across geography they're, where they're building in other places outside of silicon valley and new york and in many cases outside of the us in places like india Right. and some in europe and other places so we do have a nuanced view about that through the companies we are investing in and working with on uh companies from overseas targeting the us market and uh, you know i'd say uh, we see quite a few patterns they obviously vary by specific uh, vertical and other things but one pattern i've seen 
very commonly is there's a tendency to think that, hey, let's first get you know 20 customers in India and then let's go after the US market once we have proven, we've gotten product market fed and then we'll raise more money and chase the US market. We've right. seen that that's a much harder thing to do in practice. Uh, we've seen more success with companies and founders who are, uh, you know, from day one, if they are focused on the US market, they have to go after the US market from day one or the other, there's a bubble the approach there or the other window might be that they go there after many years and they are really well capitalized and they build up a large ship in their local market. And we focus on the former. So uh, I'd say the nuance there is that, you know, each market has its own beat uh, and you may, let's say, go and acquire five, seven customers in India or Southeast Asia or elsewhere and feel that you have some level of product market fit. But the product market fit is different because the market is different and you have to find that product market fit again, which gets harder. Once you have five, seven customers, you've raised more money, you have 30, 40 people, that's just a bigger ship that's you know harder to navigate and move. Mm-hmm. And now if you have to go back to port and start again uh, in the new market, that's just a little bit quite a bit harder. So I'd say that's one advice I have is if you're serious about global or US markets, just focusing exclusively on that market at the cost of other markets. Uh, so that's one of the biggest uh, things or patterns we have seen in the ones that are successful and that are not, uh, is that they're focused on that, you know, this market from day zero. Interesting, because, you know, I did mention, uh, I was a very early employee of a SaaS company called Vantage Circle, but um, where we did uh, move to US market after, you know, eight years after inception, but um, but would you advise a founder to move to US if he wants to, you know, just focus on the on the US market? Uh, you know, for example, if there are two founders, would you advise them to move or would you advise them to, you know, stay in India and then build from the build their team from there? Yeah, I'd say, uh, you know, for enterprise focused companies where it's a B2B sale, where there's a sales led motion, uh, there we have seen a very clear correlation and very high benefit to the founders spending time in the market that they're selling into. Yeah. And I think, again, there's multiple reasons for that. Uh, I think the most obvious one is that, uh, you know, with sales and with getting your first few customers, uh, it just helps to be in person. You know, you have a lot stacked against you as a startup with three people or five people or 10 people uh, versus all the others. And not being here in person uh, is just something you can, you know, if you can solve for that, uh, you should take that out of the equation. But then other intangibles which also accrue are, you know, the ability to get customers, uh, and of course, but also ability to get uh, hire the right talent in the US market. Right. Right. That changes dramatically is what we've seen. Once the founder is here, you're able to hire the right people, which is less likely when you're trying to do it remotely. Uh, and then also investment. So there's a this sort of virtuous cycle, uh, virtuous loop, which you can start uh, or have at least have a chance of cracking if you're here. Otherwise, it becomes a vicious, vicious loop, which moves in the other direction where... So at the early stages for folks that are trying to crack the US market, we highly recommend that they spend as much time as they can in the market, which they are you know, uh, more serious about, which if it's US, then they have to be here. And that's what we've seen across our 40 companies, I'd say about three fourths of them are cross geography. And uh, the ones that have done well, there's a very high correlation with founder focusing primarily on the US market, moving here early if they were not already here. In many cases, they're already here. 
and the other kids where they're not here, the ones that moved at the earliest possible opportunity are the ones that have done well. Mm. Current, current, interesting. But of course, there's multiple ways to do things. Uh, there's any number of counterexamples as well. And yeah. I'd say the other uh, pattern tends to be that companies that build up where the local market is large enough, they build up scale, they've raised a lot of capital, and then they start a US division later. And in often cases, in many, oftentimes, that also requires someone fairly senior, ideally a founder, moving over to the US and setting up a division here. So we've True. seen many examples of that as well. And once you have more resources, you can take care of some of the other issues which are there at the early stage. For example, hiring uh, becomes a little bit easier with more, once you're more established, you have you know more pools of capital to dip into. And from a customer perspective also, uh, customers also, uh, they don't want to you know buy from someone who's going to be out of business in six months. So yeah. uh, from larger companies, they have less of that worry again. So, uh, so yeah, slightly different, I'd say equilibrium there for companies that are trying to move here at a later stage versus mm-hmm. earlier stage where I'd say, uh, I would advise in most cases for the founder to just move here. Mm, current, current. on this market. Current and uh, all, like you, you did mention about you know some of the companies, but uh, are there any common success patterns and mistakes among among those start- uh, U.S. India startups? Yeah, I'd say the biggest one is the one which I touched upon, uh, which was uh, focusing too much on local India customers in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. if they are serious about US market and yet, because, you know, often you are in that market, you have connections, that's a somewhat easy, it's never easy to make your first five sales, but it's somewhat less daunting than trying to find your first five customers in the US. So it's sort of the path of least resistance that you're like, hey, let's get this and let's, you start some conversation, then you start selling. And often they get pulled into a different direction where, uh, again, segment is different, but in some segments, it may be that you require a broader product to crack the Indian market, but US market, there's already so many tools that people are using that you need a more narrower, sharper messaging and product to enter that market. And once you've gone that path, it's harder to go the other path. The other is, uh, I'd say also, just keeping in mind the landscape of competition uh, globally, you have to compete with the best in class, not just the best company out of India, best company out of Europe, Uh, but you are competing because from the customer's perspective, if a company locally here in Palo Alto is the one offering the best solution, uh, they would buy that. But if the best solution comes from a company in India, they may consider that. So you have to have the best uh, solution, including, of course, you know, your product pricing, the specific form factor, and the entire offering. Your package has to be the best globally, which is, again, something uh, we see. I, I mean, founders have gotten really smart and sharp over the last few years, so people are really plug- plugged in. But we do see that oftentimes people are not thinking as actively about, hey, what's the rest of the landscape currently in the US. Got it. And um, uh, uh, I wanted to uh, understand about uh, about pricing, you know, how, how should a founder structure pricing? Do you think freemium model, does it really work in B2B SaaS or would you advise a founder to uh, to not have a freemium model because it's very difficult to, you know, uh, move them from freemium to a paid version? Yeah, I'd say it's very case by case. So it works in certain cases where uh, the product and the workflow lends itself to it. There are, of course, things like you know Mailchimp and Canonly and uh, Dropbox and others which started off or primarily have a freemium type go-to-market motion. Uh, yeah. But I'd say the common theme there used to be tends to be that they often play uh, uh, tools that can uh, work well in single-player mode as well as multiplayer mode, meaning that a single user can derive value 
out of that. For example, take Calendly or mm. uh, a Mailchimp or a Dropbox, where as a single user you can just you know uh, get a free account and then just pay them ten or twenty dollars a month for your credit card and start getting value. And then you pull your team, and then there's value for the team as well. Uh, for those kind of products, I think it can work well. And I think your product also has to be very horizontal and uh, you know, wide ranging for that to really work for a venture scalable outcome because your conversion rates typically tend to be fairly low in freemium models. So you'll get a lot of users who can just get enough value from the free version and you may get a single digit percentage conversion to paid. So I'd say on the other end is tools which are, you know, let's say have to be deployed within the enterprise. Let's say the CIO has to prove it to be actually deployed. Let's say it's a security software or it's a even things like marketing or sales software, which has to be deployed across the entire team for it to be useful. Uh, for those, I'd say, yeah, you can throw in some level of premium in some occasions of PLG, but uh, if it's a sales-led motion in the end, you have to go to the champion. Uh, then you have to think about how you overlay premium with sort of more sales-led and more, you know, so that you can get the entire team to try out something. It has to be a more managed experience. It can't be just that it is just discovering it and uh, creating an account and starting to use it that uh, is less likely to work out of the box for those products where you, you need the whole team or the function or the department to actually deploy it across. And um, it's always a, a dicey thing, but when, when do you think an enterprise client should raise prices for their customers? Yeah, uh, I'd say, yeah, I don't know if I have a, uh, you know, like I, I think it varies a lot by the specific situation. Uh, so I think for solutions which are, let's say, in a market where there aren't a lot of other solutions, uh, where that's the only solution and you know the ROI is really high, where either the customer can save uh, 5 to 10x of the cost of that solution or more in uh, the people they, uh, you know, the time they're saving or people they may not need to hire next year. For, uh, and also, uh, you know, product is well-loved and it's a and the customer realizes the value they're getting. That's also important. They may be getting yeah. the value. In some cases, they're not realizing the value fully. So when all of that is happening, that's where you see more pricing power. And we have companies both in the portfolio and over the years, we've worked with companies where they've over the years increased pricing significantly. And customers have not minded that either because they're seeing so much value. And whereas on the other hand, yeah, if you know, you're in a sort of more red ocean type market, lots of competitors where someone can go and compare prices easily and or if the ROI is not as tangible, uh, or the customers are not yet realizing that as much. I'd say there it's a so I'd say it's more of a later in the game type activity where I think uh, especially again in the venture funded path, you want to really get to you know good product market fit, ensure you you have a base of customers, you have clarity on who your persona is, what's the messaging, and those customers are trying to get value out of your product at significant meaningful scale for many customers across your ICP. I'd say that's probably a time where you want to even consider that thought. I'd say I'm talking about beyond basic inflation or below inflation type increases, that which happen. I'd say you know two, three, five percent folks often put in their contracts and do that. And the third thing I'd add there is, of course, you know a lot of companies are building new functionality and adding features. That I would say is something that can be used from very early on, which companies do very successfully. Is that you would build more product, more functionality, solve more problems, and you would go and upsell or you would just raise the bar on what the entry point is for the product because now you have a package with a lot more value for the customer. But so that's a more natural way to raise your ACVs or deal sizes in the early days versus mm -hmm. trying to raise price for what you had already last year. 
Okay. And um, uh, and I was just wondering, you know, especially for early stage uh, SaaS companies, what, what are the best, uh, you know, SaaS marketing approaches and you know, how would they know, you know, uh, if this marketing approach should for the business because, you know, they should not be doing hundreds of things, but any, uh, you know, five or 10 marketing approaches that you've found works yeah. really well. Yeah, I think it's a lot of hit and trial. Uh, yeah. And again, I think the equilibrium ends up being different for each type of business for, you know, different personas, for different deal sizes, different industries. But I'd say, uh, you know, there's probably five, seven different things more probably find categories that work well, right? Um, I mean, you of course have outbound and yeah. the more you can make it warmer, the better uh, in that outbound, mm -hmm. more personalized. I think we touched upon that earlier. Then you have the whole, you know, events, webinars, that category. And I'd say in-person has been working really well for many of our companies, especially this year. I think after pandemic, a lot of folks are uh, craving in-person interaction and they're prioritizing that over endless number of Zoom calls and cold emails. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of folks are seeing success with organizing either their own events or going to the relevant targeted industry events where they're able to generate you know, and develop that trust early on with the customer. Uh, and then I think one really important piece which uh, can often get left behind in the thinking is once you, you know, you're obviously going to try a lot of channels, including, you know, of course, all your LinkedIn and Facebook and Google ads and uh, things like that, is I'd say the trust layer becomes really important as you go beyond your first few, you know, warm leads and warm contacts who get, you get your first three, five, seven design partners and customers through just a lot of hard work. But after that, you start to build a scalable go-to-market, creating that trust layer is really important. I think no one wants to just deal with someone out of the blue. So what do I mean by trust layer is, you know, things like review sites. So now, mm. of course, uh, there's G2 and Captera and others. Right. There's analysts, so analyst relations. There's, of course, influencers, bloggers, and many verticals, folks that are writing credible content, so partnering with them. Uh, there's uh, events and other people hosting webinars, maybe even podcasts and other things. Uh, so partnering and getting to the uh, where I think it always helps to the receiver to see that, hey, there's okay a few other people that believe in this. That social proof, I think, is still important. So creating that trust layer, uh, I'd say, say, is one piece which becomes very important after you found your first five, seven, ten enterprise customers. Right. And um, I, I'm, I want, wanted to understand about the, about the investments. So, you know, when you... Uh, when you invest through emergent, what, what what do you look for on, in a founding team? Because you know they uh, they got a bit of attraction and uh, they're in a. What what do you look for in a in a founding team? Yeah, yeah, I, I'd say at the stage we are coming in at typically pre seed, seed or post seed. Right. Uh, founding team is perhaps the most important uh, aspect of our investment decision. So it's really about the people uh, that we are partnering with. We're in it for the long haul. So not just the you know capital aspect of it. Of course, we are in it to generate uh, returns for our own investors, our LPs, but also you know, we roll up our sleeves and work with these founders over the coming months and years. So that that part is really important. I'd say in addition to you know, the obvious things would be, of course, we're looking for folks with high level of intellect, intellect, they have to have some level of domain expertise that they have built on the problem they're solving. Doesn't mean they have to be in the space for 10 years, but some people just in even six months have gone so deep into a problem and persona mm -hmm. that they have really understood the problem and what uh, are the current you know alternatives, what is the pain point, who will pay for this, who will not pay for this. We're looking for that understanding. 
But I'd say on the software side are the ones which are, uh, you know, ones which are harder to quantify, but are perhaps even more important than some of these things. And I'd say uh, over the years now, I've been you know, fortunate to have been involved with dozens of companies and many that have done well, many that haven't. And I'd say one constant thing, theme has been, you know, great founders are excellent at upgrading themselves continuously and at learning and becoming great at multiple things. Because you may start off as an engineer or a product manager when you started the company, or you could be a salesperson, but you almost in no cases, unless you're a repeat founder, have you managed and hired folks that are doing, you know, sales and marketing and overtime legal and HR and finance and product and everything. So great founders are able to build those skills or any skills very fast. So the ability to learn is really high and mm. the interest in learning is very high. So we're try trying to see evidence of that, even in the process or, you know, the getting to know process early on. We also, uh, you know, of course, looking for things like, you know, stakeholder ability, ability to get people along uh, with you and ability to handle objections, ability to handle rejections. And in terms of stakeholder ability, the reason it's important is, you know, in again, B2B or, uh, or in any startup, you know, you have lots of different parties you are getting on your side over time. And that includes your employees, you know, key hiring is one thing that really separates great founders from, uh, you know, just good, good founders or also rams. And then also your customers and investors. So that whole virtuous cycle comes together with folks who are able to get other people along with their vision. And, uh, and then, you know, of course, it's about perseverance and staying power over the long term, uh, who can, who is in it for the long term, uh, you know, as venture investors, we are looking for those who really want to build for the long haul something of consequence and not you know flip it to the next available uh, acquirer because for a lot of these companies there's a lot of opportunities so you know in good space enterprise is an acquisitive market so a lot of folks could do fairly well by uh, you know building for a couple of years and then finding a home for it and which is fine but we want to see some possibilities of these companies reaching massive scale and having companies of consequence so we're looking for that intent for folks that they have this urge to build something really large and uh, of course, they're still pragmatic that if need be, they would be okay with something else if that was the best for all parties. But uh, we're looking for that, yeah, ambition, ambition and hunger. So lots of things there, but that, that's what, uh, you know, early stage investing is all about. Yeah, yeah. No, totally, totally. And, and uh, you know, I also saw you, you wrote a blog post about how fundraising is not the same as sales because, you know, in sales, you're doing a lot of outreach, but uh, but how's how's fundraising, you know, uh, different from from sales? Uh, and what's your thesis uh, on what's the right way to fundraise? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, there are definitely some similarities, and what that does is often, you know, founders who are or whose sales is new, uh, we have seen that, you know, and often folks again maybe coming from a technical background, so they are learning sales, and yeah. they tend to implicitly or explicitly assume that venture fundraising is similar, so they tend to use the same muscle for fundraising as well. But there are many differences is what I wanted to highlight in that post. Uh, and those differences uh, arise from, you know, with in sales, uh, the customer has a pain point and they're looking for a solution to that. Whereas fundraising, it's really a competitive process. You know, most venture firms uh, maybe make, you know, as individuals, they'll make one or two, I make one or two investments a year, let's say. And I meet several hundred companies a year. So I'm looking for those one or two that really stand out versus others across the board versus someone who's looking to buy software in your domain. They're looking for someone who, who's the best position to solve their, uh, 
you know, the pain point that they have. But then I'd say the other differences are also around the cadence. I think venture fundraising processes, a well-run process needs to have an element of urgency and scarcity. Otherwise, they don't lead to good outcomes. So you have to create a timeline and stick to it, meaning that you have to create a wide funnel. You have to have some level of timeline where you reach out to and have great conversations with a number of investors around the same time. And that helps move everyone along versus in sales, that aspect doesn't exist. You know, if you're talking to Corporation A, uh, it doesn't really uh, matter if you're also talking to B, C, D, E, F, and G uh, as much versus with venture capital, it does matter because, uh, you know, you can only have one lead investor or maybe two uh, co-lead investors. You're not going to have 10 at a time. Whereas with sales, yeah, all of A, B, C, D, E, F, G can buy your software from you at the same time. So there's no element of that, which I think is very important piece to keep in mind as folks are going around with their early stage fundraising. Then I'd say another one is around the timing, uh, which relates a little bit to the previous one. So there's timing in terms of you have to have a case of, hey, I'm raising, I'm starting a process uh, in September, and then I'm expecting term sheets by October. I want to close before Thanksgiving, this is an example. Mm-hmm. But the other is also seasonality during the year. And I think sales tends to have a little bit less seasonality. Uh, venture fundraising, especially as you go into larger rounds, later stage rounds, or even as a series A onwards, there's pronounced seasonality. I'd say summer definitely tends to be slower. Holidays in the, over the winter break tend to be slower. And you don't want to be mid-process at those times. So ideally, you want to start either right after summer or right after winter, uh, where you don't risk having your process be lost during that, uh, you know, those slower months. Uh, so that's another aspect I'd say folks often tend to miss. There's a lot of other, you know, numerous small tactical things that we've seen over the years. It could range from actually just the deck and the materials that they have. Folks tend to overemphasize in sales on the product, which for sales, again, you know, uh, even on sales, uh, ideally you want to be doing fairly consultative selling, especially if you're selling larger deals where you are in a conversation with the buyer around their needs and standing there and then telling them about the product. On the, you know, on venture, and we just talked about teams. So on venture, I think you have to really lead with uh, yourself. You are the product uh, as a founder, and then talk about the product. I often, I often see founders who spend ninety five percent of the pitch talking about the product, and they, there's barely time left to talk about their backgrounds, their motivations, talk about the TAM, talk about competition, talk about potential business models, how they would get their first five customers. There's so much more which you don't talk in a sales call. Uh, which again, uh, I've seen folks do that. I mean, and there's a spectrum and there are folks who just are natural at it. And I'm like, hey, where did you learn? This is your you know, first five pitches and they're great at it. But I, I'd say more often than not, I see folks who tend to run the first, you know, especially the first couple of rounds, they're trying to run the venture fundraising process like uh, sales process. Mm, correct. Yeah, no, I, I think that's uh, uh, not very well said. Like, you know, it's, it's totally different uh, how the fundraising happens with with sales. And, you know, I, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Yeah, that's a good one. You know, there's a shelf of books I keep here of whatever I like. I keep a hard copy here. Nice. If I had to pick one, uh, which was formative during my earlier years, a book called The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen, who was a professor at Harvard uh, Business School. And it's a pretty seminal book and uh, pretty often cited. And uh, that is pretty formative for me when, I was growing up in my career as a sort of product person, business person. So thinking, the book really goes into, uh, you know, innovative uh, sort of, you know, dis- disruptive technologies and disruptive innovation and uh, some of the roadblocks that larger companies have 
uh, while trying to take to market, uh, uh, you know, new technologies, which may seem like they are maybe not as great or may not have as big of a market initially. And that's what opens the door for startups. So understanding that as a startup is important because both often your uh, customers could be large companies, but also to understand how large companies may respond to the threat that you may bring as a startup uh, to you. So I'd say, yeah, that's one that I'd mention. Sure, we'll put, put that in the show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you started your career in venture capital, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? So if I had to pick one thing, I'd say writing down my thoughts more comprehensively than I did. Uh, so capturing my learnings, uh, because you're just learning so much. I think venture capital and startups are such an area, being a founder or being a VC, you're just learning so much that if you're able to just capture what you're learning and retain it, uh, you're going to get better a lot faster. So I wish I had maintained better notes of what I was thinking, which I do now. I've been doing that for the last five plus years now, but maintaining just the internal thought process on why you know I like a certain uh, you know market or a certain founder, or why I'm making that decision or that recommendation. Uh, that would have been uh, that could have accelerated that learning process. I feel. Right. And, and do you have any favorite online tool, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? I'd say today, uh, or, you know, today's day I took pick I, it has to be ChatGPT. It's just, uh, you know, the research, especially again, as an investor, every day I'm meeting folks in different parts of the B2B enterprise AI space. And uh, it's great for just getting the lay of the land on, let's say, a new segment or diving deeper into certain things, fetching data. It's almost like, uh, you know, it's, it's a sort of a Jarvis type suit that you have uh, or, or any of the LLMs, I'd say, you know, could be part or others. The, those have been super useful the last six months. I'm sure six months back, the, I mean, six months back, the answer would have been different because ChatGPT wasn't there or right. 10 months back, but that's my current answer. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think I can't do without ChatGPT every day. Um, so we'll put down in the show notes. And uh, uh, Alpin, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Emerging Ventures? Yeah, they can you know find me on LinkedIn, uh, Anupam Rastogi. So uh, and and they can reach me via email. Uh, you know, it's fairly easy to figure out my email address. Uh, our our website is www.emergent.vc. And uh, my email is pretty easy to figure out. Uh, and uh, yeah, look forward to connecting with the you know with founders. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Alvin, thank you so much for taking our time speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thanks a lot, Rohit. This is great. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.